We're going to be in Romans chapter 3 again this morning. And I'll uh, open this up in a word of prayer before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and Lord, we just give you praise for another opportunity that we have as a body of believers to come together, uh, to worship you, Lord, to uh, hear your word, to study your word, Lord, to uh, just take it into our lives. We thank you so much for the scriptures that you've given us, Lord, the, the word that you have uh, revealed to us, and we pray, Lord, that you would just give us understanding into it this morning. We thank you for another beautiful day, for the time that we have to study together, Lord, we just pray that this would be a day that would bring glory and honor to you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Romans chapter 3. In our study of the book of Romans, we've come to a turning point in the book, the start of the next major section of the book of Romans. Since chapter 1 in verse 18, Paul has been talking about sin. He's been talking about man's fallen condition before God. The discussion that began in chapter 1, verse 18, and continued all the way down through verse 20 of chapter 3, which is where we ended our last lesson. We've seen in that entire section, it took us weeks, months, whatever you want to say, we've seen in that entire section um, that in no uncertain terms, Mankind is without hope. Mankind has rejected God. Mankind has taken the glory that belongs to God and has taken that glory for himself. Living for himself, worshiping himself, suppressing the truth about God and rejecting every aspect of him. That was the state of every man in chapter 1. Even those who know nothing else about God even if they have never been given a Bible, never even seen God's Word, or ever even heard the name of Jesus Christ, they stand condemned before God. Why? Because what God has revealed, even in His creation, is enough of a revelation of Himself to them that they stand without excuse. They have no excuse. Mankind is under His wrath and has been turned over to His own depravity, free to engage in his own selfish and sinful desire, storing up wrath for himself or upon himself in his own sins. Then in chapter 2, that was all in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, Paul upped the stakes even further. If those who have never even heard the name of God stood condemned before him in their sins, then what about those who had heard of God and even more had been given his word? had been given his law, and even had been given special blessings by God. What about them? Do they also stand condemned, or do they get a pass in their judgment because of who they are, or the advantages that they had been given? The answer is they do not get a pass. They too stand condemned before God. This was the situation of the Jews, as Paul made clear when we got to verse 17 of chapter 2, who had been given the law, they'd been given the prophets, the blessings, the covenants, even Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah, came into the world through the nation of Israel, himself being a Jew. And even then, with all of those advantages that they had, they still stand condemned, because as Paul made clear in the first verses of chapter 2, 
they pass judgment on others. They look at the world and they see the sin of the world. They pass judgment on the Gentiles while doing the same things themselves. They sin as well. They reject God for their own selfish desires as well. But the difference is they ought to know better because of the advantages they've been given. So as we came through all of that, leading up to the section that started in verse 10 of chapter 3 down through verse 20 of the, of the chapter, there we saw the conclusion to all this, or this, the summary of all this. The verdict against all of humanity based on what Paul has been presenting in that entire previous section. There is none righteous, not even one. None are righteous at all, none at all. Remember back to the verses preceding verse 18 of chapter 1, right? That were the theme verses of the entire book where we had uh, in verse 16, 16 and 17 where, this, where uh, Paul tells us this entire argument where he's taking us. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Why? Why is that necessary for God's righteousness to be revealed? Because man doesn't measure up to God's righteousness. None are righteous, not even one. No one measures up to the perfect standard of God. Jew or Gentile, which includes everyone on earth. We talk about Jews and Gentiles, we can't look at those groups and say, well, that's them. No. Every single one of us fits into either Jew or Gentile. It includes everyone on earth. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. There's no other group, no other option. Jew or Gentile doesn't matter. Not a single one is righteous. He said in verse 9 of chapter 3 that they are all under sin. That's controlled by, dominated by their own sin. They are enslaved to their own sin. We'll see that as we get into later chapters of the book. He went through their character, their speech, their deeds, the sum total of everything about them really. And the final verdict of all that has been presented is found in verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No flesh is justified in his sight. Not by the works of the law, which was God's word given to the nation of Israel, and if it wasn't possible by the law which God had given, then it's not possible by any works at all. Justified is an interesting word. It's an important word. You know, there are certain words throughout Scripture that when we see them, we need to have a kind of a mental dictionary in our heads of of what these things are. But justified is an important word, and it's one that we'll see over and over again as we move on in the chapter. It's a legal term that means to be declared righteous or to declare something righteous, something or someone. The base word for righteous is found in the word justify. So in the coming verses, we're going to see this word a lot, and we'll see that righteousness is really the main theme of our next section. But the meaning in verse 20 is that as one tries to perform the works of the law, these works are not enough to make that person righteous. To make God look at that life, measure it up against his standard of his own righteousness, and say, yep, 
that life measures up. It's a righteous life. That's a righteous person. It can't happen. It won't happen. Nothing that anyone can do with the law or without the law can make a person righteous before God. No one will ever meet that standard. It's a bleak picture that we're left with here at the end of verse 20 of chapter 3. Keep in mind, this argument that Paul is presenting, it's very linear. It's, it's a very logical arm, argument that he's taking us through. As we read through Romans, and we get to the end of verse 20, chapter 3, there is absolutely no hope for mankind as far as what's been presented so far. This is absolutely rock bottom. I should say rock bottom, not up here, down here. Now, over the weeks, the months that we've been studying these chapters, I've made mention of and reference to being saved and accepting the gospel and how that changes a life. But quite frankly, we've made those references because to leave you week after week with another lesson on sinful man and how there's no hope without at least alluding to the gospel is not really a very nice way of ending each week and each lesson. But it's important that we understand at this point in the letter, when you put yourselves in the shoes of the early church, like this church at Rome, reading this letter for the very first time from verses 18 of chapter 1 to verse 20 of chapter 3, that there's no hope presented here. Paul is really not referencing anything at all that would even offer us a glimmer of hope. Yes, in chapter 2, he made reference to eternal life and immortality and peace in the context of those who would persevere in doing good, those who do good continually, perfectly, without fail. But as he continues on, he showed that the reality is nobody does that. No one can do that. That is absolutely not possible for anyone. So as you get to this point of the letter right here, you can't help but feel a little low. Man is under the authority of sin, storing up wrath for himself in the day of judgment, unrighteous, useless, turned completely away from God. That is where we are right now. You can't get any lower than that. Now, we come to verse 21 of chapter 3. Here, Paul presents us with the picture of hope. Not hope in ourselves, not hope in the law or anything that we can do, but hope in what God has done for us and what he's done on our behalf. Here we move on in the gospel presentation. As Paul presented the problem in the preceding section, here he starts to talk about the solution. If we are not righteous, and there is no way for us to become righteous, then how could we ever be saved? How could we ever appease the wrath of God? How could we ever stave off his judgment upon us? How could any of that even be remotely possible? Well, if you remember back in verse 16 of chapter 1, it has to do with faith. Belief in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Somehow, in some way, the gospel has the power to accomplish what mankind, you and I, could never do for ourselves. 
Only God can reveal his righteousness. Only God can save us. Only God can fix the problem that we have created through our own rejection of him and placing ourselves under the authority of our own sins. Only God can do that. And it's a solution, a fix, that is available to all. And it's applicable to everyone who believes in it, from faith to faith, by faith, and faith alone. Verses 21 through 26 are one paragraph together. And many writers have said that this paragraph is the heart of the book of Romans. In fact, Luther went so far as to say that this paragraph was not only the very heart of Romans, but the heart of the Bible itself. And whether or not you agree with a claim that a claim like that can be made, it's at least apparent that what Paul presents here is vitally important to our understanding of the gospel. This paragraph gives us a clear explanation of how a holy and righteous God can declare sinful men and women to be righteous before him. We're going to see some important concepts here. Justification, I already mentioned that one briefly. We'll talk about redemption and everyone's favorite, propitiation. That's, that's the one that rolls off everyone's tongue, right? All those come up in this paragraph, and we'll talk about them as we get to them. So let's see how Paul starts off this next section, starting in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So here he's picking up or transitioning from what he previously said in verse 20, right? But now, this is a very clear-cut turn from his previous point. And what he just said in the previous verse especially, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So we had no flesh being justified by the works of the law. And remember, justified is that legal term that means to declare someone righteous. Verses 9 through 20 were that courtroom scene. Remember we talked about it being a courtroom scene where the charges were brought against us. You had the charge, we had the evidence from the Old Testament, and the verdict was right there in verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be declared righteous in his sight. So we're guilty. Now verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. So as Paul pointed out at the end of verse 20, the law was never intended to save anyone. It was through the law that the knowledge of sin came. It was a means by which Israel was to govern their conduct, show them how they ought to live, what God's standard of right living was. But you know what was an interesting thing about the law? Within the law itself, there were sacrifices that they were supposed to offer for their sins. The very idea of making sacrifices for sins was built into the law. And what does that show? It shows that God never intended anyone to keep the law perfectly. If it was expected to be kept perfectly, why would there be laws built into it? To provide sacrifices for forgiveness of sins. Because what were sins? The breaking of the law, right? They were sinning. It was always expected that they would break parts of the law. It was, supposed, it was presupposed in the giving of it in the first place. So to think that keeping the law perfectly would save you, that's an impossibility. And is keeping it perfectly would include, 
include the sacrifices for sins, which would in turn include the fact that you sinned in the first place and thus broke the law, and so there's a circular kind of argument going on there. So all this to say that the law never justified anyone, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. God's righteousness has been shown, manifested, revealed apart from the law, separate from the law. And this is really a continuation of that last statement, not justified by the law, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Instead, the righteousness of God is manifest apart from the law. That is the only way one can be justified. For the Jews, this would probably be a very eye-opening statement. It shouldn't be, but it, it probably was. I'm not justified by the works of the law. It was never about the law. It shouldn't have been eye-opening to them, because look at the last phrase of the verse, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Remember what we looked at last time, those Old Testament quotes from verses 10 through 18, all showing God's evidence against man from various parts of the Old Testament. They showed that what Paul was saying wasn't anything new. Taking Old Testament quotes to prove his point. Same thing that we're seeing here. This isn't anything new either. Righteousness being manifest outside of the law was testified to in the law and the prophets, the Old Testament writings themselves. So just like we mentioned before, the law held instructions for sacrifices. The spilling of blood of bulls and goats were to be sacrifices to atone for sins. Death was shown to be a payment that was required for sin. The animal's death was a reminder to them of their sin, the animal being a substitute for them in death. Now the problem was the blood of bulls and goats was never sufficient to take away sins. The writer of Hebrews states that plainly in Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what was the point? The point was the reminder, the reminder of their sins, acknowledgement that they stand before God insufficient, guilty, unrighteous. And they would need to call out to him for their salvation because their own works of the law could not save them. So if that wasn't sufficient, sacrifices and their own works weren't sufficient, what is sufficient? The blood of Jesus Christ. The work of Christ on the cross is what does actually take away sins. And that's what the sacrifices within the law testified to. A coming sacrifice that would be sufficient. A coming sacrifice that would make atonement for sins. This sacrifice that was yet future for them would satisfy the demands of God's holiness, of God's righteousness that man couldn't satisfy himself unless he paid for it with his own life, in death. The law anticipated it. The prophets spoke of it. Turn back with me to the Old Testament, to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. This is one of the more well-known messianic prophecies. We read a verse from here. In our last study, talking about man's turning aside from God. But the context of this chapter shows just what Paul is talking about here in Romans 3. This chapter is talking about a man of sorrows. Who's the man of sorrows? Christ, right? Messiah himself. 
Verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Look down at verse 5. At the very beginning he says, For he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. So here we have it. This is a very familiar passage of the coming Messiah and the suffering that he would endure on our behalf. But look at verse 6. And this is the one I read part of last time. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Just like Paul talks about in Romans 3, we turned aside, we have gone our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity or the sins of us all to fall on him. He bore our sins upon himself. A couple more verses down at the very end of verse 8. It says that he was cut off at the, out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Again, taking punishment for the people's transgressions. Down in verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet... He himself bore the sin of many and intercedes for the transgressors. So you see the point, and this is just one chapter that deals with this. There are hundreds of promises related to Christ in the Old Testament. The law and the prophets bear witness of who he was and what he would do when he came. His coming, his atoning sacrifice. So you have the Old Testament prophets bearing witness to the sacrifice of the Messiah that was to come. Both the law and the prophets testified to this. On our way back to Romans, stop in the book of Galatians. I know technically it's not on the way back, but go to Galatians before you go to Romans. There are many parallels between Romans and Galatians. In the third chapter of Galatians, Paul talks there about the law as well. And here we see the purpose of the law put together with what was prophesied, just like we saw in Isaiah. But look down at verse 19 of Galatians chapter 3. The question is asked, why the law then? It was added because of transgression, transgressions. And you see right there, why was the law given? Because of transgressions. Much like we saw in Isaiah, and even earlier in Romans, the people were already imperfect. They were already unrighteous having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, now note this, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. This is a reference to the coming of Christ. The Messiah, the seed who would take away their sins, this is an end point of the law. And that's how, the law, that's how long the law was necessary, until the seed, the Messiah, would come. Now skip down to verse 24. This whole section is good. But I had to remind myself that we're studying Romans, not Galatians. So we're going to skip. Verse 24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Here's the law's purpose. The law was to be a tutor, a guide, a schoolmaster until Christ came. 
This, this verse here doesn't mean that the law is necessary to teach now to lead someone to Christ. It means that the law's purpose was to guide those who were under it, to oversee them until the coming of the Messiah. That's what it was for. That's what it was always pointing to, the coming of the Messiah. Always intended to do, lead God's people along until Jesus Christ could provide the sacrifice for sins. So back in Romans chapter 3, righteousness isn't found in the law. It's found apart from it and was always intended to be that way. Now that's what's true about it. That's where righteousness is found. Well, that's great. But how does that affect me? Remember, for three chapters, I've been beaten down. I've been told that I am unrighteous, lost, worthless, vile, wicked, a lost sinner under the wrath of God. How does the chasm between God's manifested righteousness, which we put way up here, that was testified to in the Old Testament, and my complete and total unrighteousness, which is way down here, how does that chasm get get crossed? Look at verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Here it is. Here we see how a person receives the righteousness of God and who can receive it. The righteousness of God, that manifested righteousness that he talked about in verse 21 as well as back in verse 17 of chapter 1 is received through faith. Now faith is one of those things that we think we know what it is, but sometimes we get some misunderstanding with faith. Is it enough to just have faith? Is it enough to be a person of faith? There are a lot of people of faith out there, right? We talk about, well, he's a person of faith, she's a person of faith. Mormons are people of faith. Muslims are people of faith. Atheists are people of faith. How much faith do you think you need to believe that the entire universe was created by nothing at all? That's a lot of faith that you have to have right there. Are all of those people saved? No. Why? Don't they have faith? Sure. But they don't have faith in the right thing. The faith itself isn't nearly as important as the object of the faith. What are you believing in? What are you placing your faith in? It's faith in Jesus Christ that's necessary. Not even just faith in God. People will say, well, I believe in God. I have faith in God. But that's not even enough. It's faith in Jesus Christ. And I stress this because there are a lot of people out there that rely on knowing someone who's just a person of faith. As if that alone means something. And it doesn't. You have to know what is it that they put their faith in. If it's not Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross, then it's not saving faith. And quite frankly, it means nothing as far as salvation is concerned. It's faith in Jesus Christ that brings the righteousness of God into a person's life, that bridges that chasm, allowing his righteousness to be applied to their account. And furthermore, you have to understand there is a difference between just knowing facts and in actually believing in him. Having faith or believing in Jesus Christ is more than just about knowing who he is, knowing the Bible stories, knowing the Gospels, knowing 
even the gospel itself backwards and forwards, even knowing the details on his death, burial, and resurrection. If you remember a couple of months ago now, I told you about when I was in college, there was the professor that taught the class on Christianity. And it was really a class he taught to discredit Christianity. But that professor, he knew the details of Jesus Christ in his life backwards and forwards. He knew about Jesus Christ. He knew facts about him, but he didn't know him. And he certainly didn't believe in him. And there are people that sit in churches just like ours each and every week, maybe even in our church, hearing God's word being taught, hearing the truth of Jesus Christ, hearing about all that he did for them on the cross, and have never truly believed and have put their faith and trust in him. Those people are not saved. Those people have never had the righteousness of God applied to their account. It's the people who have recognized what Paul has been saying here, that they stand condemned before a holy God, that they have no righteousness in in and of themselves and have no hope of obtaining that righteousness through anything that they can do. And they understand that Jesus Christ, God himself, who came to earth in the flesh, perfectly righteous himself, totally sinless, died on the cross to pay that penalty for their sins. He died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again, paying the penalty that they owed, that I owed, that we all owed, and putting their faith in that, believing in that provision that he made for them, knowing that that is the only way that they can be saved. That's saving faith. That's what Paul is talking about here when he says, believe and have faith in Jesus Christ. So that's how we're saved, through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a narrow means. It's the narrowest of means. It is one way and only one way. It's not faith in Jesus Christ that works for you, but something else works for me. No, it's the only thing that works. But in the next phrase, this one way is a way that's open to everyone, for all those who believe, he says. We saw this back in chapter 1 as well, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Here, Paul says the same thing. Who can be saved? Everyone, all who believe. It's not just Jew, it's not just Gentile, it's everyone who believes. So anyone and everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. Now, starting with the last phrase in verse 22, we get a reminder from where we've come. What he's been dealing with in the last couple of chapters. He says, the end of verse 22, for there is no distinction. And then verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Where have we talked about distinction before? Right? He says there's no distinction. We talked about it in his judgment, right? Jews sin, Gentile sin, there is no distinction. God is impartial. He will judge them both. They will both stand condemned. It doesn't matter who you are. And why is that? Because all were guilty before God. All were unrighteous, worthless. All those things that we saw from verse 9 through verse 20 of this chapter, it applies to us all equally. Now, you put this in context with what he just said, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believed, there's no distinction. And then he goes on to say, for all have sinned. And what are we talking about? 
We're talking about the provision for salvation for sinners. It's sinners, the unrighteous, that are in view here because this is who this applies to. All have sinned is a phrase that's in the past tense. And I don't necessarily like getting into Greek words in past tense. Okay, I love getting into it, but I, don't, I try not to do it as much as I can. But this is a phrase in the past tense that indicates that this is something that everyone has done in the past, and therefore this leads to a present condition, which is they fall short of the glory of God. This phrase is an ongoing present tense action. A person's current state, the state that he has been going over for three chapters now, we do not measure up to God, to the glory of God. The perfection of who he is, no one does. When we look at our lives and we compare ourselves to God, there is no comparison at all. We have all sinned and we all fall short of his glory. So then we come to verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. At first glance, verses 22 and 23 and even into 24 seem a little disjointed, coming together. We talk about God's righteousness revealed to everyone who believes in verse 22. Then we go back to everyone's sinful condition. And now we're right back to being justified or declared righteous. How does this fit together? It all hinges, again, on the impartiality of God. Again, there being no distinction. There was no distinction in judgment. There is no distinction in salvation. All have sinned, and no one measures up to God's glory. That is the pool from which we have to draw. Remember, we've talked before about how sometimes I think we think of mankind as, well, here's the pool of sinful mankind, or, or mankind is neutral, and some get saved, and some are sinners. But that's not how it is. It's all a pool of sinful mankind. There's no distinction in judgment. There's no distinction in salvation. So this is the pool from which we have the draw, the pool of all, of the, all those who believe in verse 22. Where does the impartiality or the no distinction come in? It comes here in verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace. And justified, again, to declare righteous, right? Keep that in mind. So what do we have? To put this in proper perspective, we have All who believe, without distinction, who put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, from verse 22. All of those people have sinned and fall short of God's glory, in verse 23, the pool from which they come. And in doing so, having that faith, here in verse 24, we see that they are declared to be righteous as a gift by His grace. This is God declaring the unrighteous to be righteous. So we have to ask the question, why would he do that? What could possibly be his motivation in declaring someone who's unrighteous to be righteous? What have they done to deserve that? Nothing. Nothing at all. And that's the point that we find here in verse 24. There are two words used here for something that's free. And I think it's intentional that Paul uses two different words here. A gift, by its very nature, is something that's free, right? A gift, by its very definition, is something that's undeserved. My company pays me a wage 
every two weeks. But they don't come to me and say, or they don't write on my checks, hey, here's your gift. We're going to pay you a gift every two weeks. If they did, I'd probably say, oh, that's great if you want to give me a gift every two weeks. Just make sure it's the opposite Fridays of the day that you pay me. That would be perfect. But a paycheck isn't a gift. Why? Because that's something that I've earned, right? I I work, they pay me for the work that I've done. That's not a gift. Now, if my neighbor comes over to me and says, hey, I have an extra car I don't need. I don't have a neighbor like that, but if I did, do you want it? I'm going to give you my car. Perfect. Great. That would be a gift, right? Something I didn't do anything for. He just gave it to me. So that's what a gift is. That's how we define grace as well. Undeserved or unmerited favor. But the word that Paul uses for gift here has a slightly different meaning than that. It's a word that means free, but can also mean without cause or even needlessly. And I believe that what Paul is trying to get across here is that not only was the justification provided to sinners who believe free or undeserved, but that there's also no cause for it. There's no reason for it. For instance, I might give my kids a gift because it's their birthday, right? The birthday comes up and you feel, okay, I'm going to give somebody a gift. I give them a gift. It's undeserved. You could say that that gift I've given them is an act of grace, but I did it because it's their birthday. I had a reason for doing it, maybe even a self-imposed obligation for doing it, but they still didn't do anything to earn that gift. I didn't tell them, well, if you take the trash out every week, then I'll give you a present on your birthday. But using these two words here, Paul is making the case that not only did we not deserve it in any way, but God didn't have to do it for any reason. As sinners, lost in our sins, falling well short of his glory, God had absolutely no obligation to save us. There was nothing compelling him to do so. Only his mercy and his grace at work in his good pleasure made it possible for me to believe in what he did for me in the gospel. That's it. The entire reason that I or anyone else can stand here today justified was because of the free, undeserved, unmerited, without cause, grace gift that God chose to provide. That's the remarkable thing about God's work on the cross. He didn't have to do it, but he did it anyway. And I think that's one of the things that people fail to understand. I think even as Christians sometimes, we need reminders of this from time to time. We were in no way good enough without this gift that God provided. We've talked before about people how to com- like to compare themselves, right? We saw it when we talked about Jew and Gentile, the same issues that Paul was working through here with the Jews, right? They compared themselves. They say, you know, sure, I sinned. Okay, yeah, I'm a sinner. But I didn't do these kinds of sins. But I'm not as bad as these people over here. But I've always tried to do the best that I could do. And by issuing these kinds of comparisons, what are we really doing? We're saying, well, sure, we're all unworthy of God's grace. But I'm just a little less unworthy than someone else. And no, you're not. 
And no, I'm not. One sin, one minor sin, any sin, and you do not measure up to the righteousness of God. We've all heard the phrase, a miss is as good as a mile, right? If you're aiming for something and you miss it by a fraction of an inch, or if you miss it by an entire mile, the result is the same. You didn't hit it. You missed it, right? We've talked about the measuring stick, the yard. What does a section of rope that's three inches long have in common with a section of rope that's 35 and a half inches long? Neither one is a yard. Neither one of them measures up to a yardstick. It doesn't matter how many times you sinned or how grievous your sins are. You've sinned. All have sinned. It's not, if not for God providing a way out, a sacrifice through the work of his son on the cross, then there would be no hope at all for anyone. God didn't have to do this. People go around talking about, well, you know, if he's going to save any, then it's not fair that he doesn't save everyone. Well, no, if you think that, then you don't get it. He didn't have to save anyone. And actually, by our own human reasoning, we could actually make the case that he shouldn't have saved anyone. We are all sinners. We had all rejected him. All of us had turned aside to our own way. There was no good reason for salvation to be provided to anyone, and yet he did it. He did it anyway. Truly, unfathomably remarkable act of grace. It's a gift by his grace. We didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, and yet there it is. Now as Paul continues on, we are still left with some questions about this. We were sinners. The only way for us to have the righteousness of God credited to our account is to have faith in the Son. But why does that work? What is it about Jesus Christ and believing in him that makes that possible? Okay, so we know who Christ is. We know he came to earth. We know he died on the cross. Why does that reveal righteousness to me? That's what we see next justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Declared to be righteous as an unmerited gift of grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus. This was the gift from God, a way, the way in which God has accomplished this, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So now we have to ask ourselves, this was one of the words I mentioned earlier on, redemption. We need to understand what redemption is. Redemption is one of those key words that, you remember I told you earlier was coming, it's one that as believers we need to have a good understanding of what redemption is. It's a word that we read, we hear it, we probably even say it ourselves, we throw that word around, but do we really have a good understanding of what it is? Redemption means to be set free by paying a price. It's a word that was used in reference to how slaves at the time were set free. A certain price could be paid for someone who was in slavery. And some slaves were in slavery because they owed a debt to someone that was so great that they were enslaved to them until that debt could be paid. By which 
but, but if they could pay that debt off, if somebody could make a payment for that slave, they could then gain their freedom from whoever it was to which they were enslaved. And after that point, they were no longer under obligation to their former master. So the same idea here. Christ redeemed us, sinners, by paying a price for us. Remember what we saw back in Isaiah 53, the very familiar sixth verse of Isaiah 53. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Our iniquities went where? On Jesus Christ. They fell on him. This is a very important concept here. Because we need to understand God didn't just look at us. He didn't just see our sins and simply say, ah, never mind, I'll forget about those. I'll just give them a pass and say that they're righteous now. They're, they sinned, they weren't righteous before, but I'll just say that they are now. No, we were under his wrath, we were storing up wrath for ourselves. Those sins required a penalty to be paid. God's holiness and righteousness demand the penalty be paid. They demand that his justice be satisfied. What did we see in chapter 2? That God judges everyone for their sins. There's no distinction, no impartiality. Everyone must pay their penalty. Everyone must pay the price for their sins. They owe that. What's the price? What's the price for our sins? When we get to chapter 6, another familiar verse we find there, we see that the payment that needs to be exacted for the sins that you and I have committed for the wages of sin is what? Death. If you sin, your sins must be paid for. God's justice must be satisfied. Death is the wage earned by each and every sin. So what happened? Jesus Christ paid the penalty that your sins and my sins incurred in his own body on the cross. We need to know that. We need to understand that. That's not a small matter. So it's not as if God saved us by simply giving us a pass. Simply by saying, oh yeah, you sinned, but I'll just overlook those for you. No, we spent the better part of three chapters talking about how no one gets a pass. So even those who are justified, whom he declares to be righteous, the payment has to be made. If we were not going to pay that wage ourselves by dying, then it had to be paid by someone else. We had to be redeemed, have someone else pay that penalty for us. Look over with me in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. We'll see a few instances of this. We're not going to get down to verse 26 today, just so that we know. Look over in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul starts off Ephesians with this long run-on 12-verse sentence in Ephesians 1 that takes believers on a journey before the foundation of the world all the way up to our inheritance and glory with him for all eternity and everything in between here. We're not going to look at the whole thing, uh, but this is what God has done for us in salvation. So look down at verse 7, where it says in verse 7, "...in him we have redemption through his blood." the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. And you see here, this is the same thing that we're talking about in Romans 3. We have redemption. How? 
through his blood. And that's talking about his death. His blood means that he died. He redeemed us by dying for us, forgiving our trespasses, our sins, according to what? The riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, it says. And I love that word lavished. When I think of the word lavished, I think of a kid making his own peanut butter sandwich. And he goes in and he takes one piece of bread and he takes half the jar of peanut butter and he just starts slapping it on, lavishing it on that piece of bread. And that's what I see here when I see that God lavished his riches on us. He didn't just dole out a blessing here and there. He didn't just dole out grace a little bit. Here's just a little bit that you need. He's lavished his riches of his grace on us. Undeserved, unmerited favor upon us. That's what we're talking about. He paid for our freedom from the penalty of sin with his own blood. That's what it took. A payment of blood. Death. I could not work my way out of it. No work that I did could pay that penalty. Only my death, my physical and eternal death, would have satisfied that penalty because that's what the price was. But God, Jesus Christ in the flesh, took that penalty that I owed and paid it on my behalf. Even when he didn't have to. Even when from any logical standpoint that we could come up with, he shouldn't have paid it for me. He did it anyway. Look over in second, uh, the second chapter of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We see another example here. At the beginning of this chapter, Paul calls on Timothy to pray for everyone. All men everywhere, he says. And we come down to verse 3 and we see the reason why. He says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see the desire of God for all men to be saved. It's truly a remarkable statement in and of itself. All men are sinners. All men reject God. And yet, what is God's desire? For all men to be saved. He continues on in verse 5 where he says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And there we are again. Christ Jesus is the mediator. He is the only way that man can be reconciled to God. And how did he make that possible? Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Ransom, this is from the same word that we get redemption. He redeemed us. He provided himself as that payment, that payment on our behalf. One more passage, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. We'll see the word used again. This time Jesus himself uses it. In Matthew chapter 20, there's this discussion going on. He's talking about serving others. The disciples are debating who would be first in the kingdom. Do I get the left side or the right side of you in glory? Where do I get to sit? That sort of thing. But if you look down at verse 28 of Matthew chapter 20... Jesus here says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and what? To give his life a ransom for many. There's our root word again. He was our ransom. Why did Jesus Christ come to earth? Why was he here? God in heaven humbled himself by becoming human, living life here on earth for what purpose? To give his life 
a ransom for many. The sacrifice that Christ made on the cross wasn't just another good thing that he did while he was here. It's why he came, to provide a ransom for sins. There was no other reason for him to come in the likeness of sinful flesh, as Paul will say in chapter 8 of Romans. Back to Romans 3. We're going to end with verse 24 today. There's more coming in 25 and 26, but we'll save those for next time. We want to pace ourselves. We're going to get to propitiation next week, another word that we need to familiarize ourselves with. But what do we have here? In just these four verses, hope. There is hope after the darkness of sin that was presented in the previous section. We are all sinners. We all stood guilty before God. There wasn't anyone that was excused from that 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 wasn't true of. But now, apart from the law, apart from the measuring stick that revealed sinful lives, God has manifested his righteousness in the way that he promised long ago in the law and the prophets. He told them this was coming. The Jews should have known that this was what was going to happen. By providing a ransom for our sins in his son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. If we believe, that's what it takes. Not to do anything. Simply believe in what God has already done for us on our behalf. It's remarkable. It's unfathomable. This gift that God gave to us, to the world, really. It's for all who believed, and that's really what is so tragic, because there are so many people that won't believe it. But Paul tells us right here, all who believe will be saved. Any fallen sinner, of all those who fall short of God's glory, all that they have to do is believe. And if they believe, then what? Then he will declare them to be righteous, washed clean, standing before himself, having received the redemption that he made available through the Son. That free gift of him dying to pay the penalty for our sins and will stand before him as righteous in his eyes. We will be declared to be not guilty. And we'll get into a few more details of this next time. And again, we're not done with Romans by any means. There's still a lot more detail to look at. But here at least we get to see the beginning of the inner workings of how one is justified by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you once again. Lord, we just give you praise for this opportunity to be in the book of Romans. And Lord, we look at your workings and salvation and, and the sacrifice that you made on our behalf, Lord, and, and what you have done for us as your children. And Lord, we just stand in awe of all that you've done and the way that you have worked out uh, this plan of salvation. And Lord, we just pray that that we would have a proper understanding of it, that we would be able to share the work that you've done, the gospel, with others, Lord, knowing that that is the only way that people can be saved. We just pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, make that a priority in our lives, to be sharing your word, to be sharing the gospel, be sharing the truth of the plan for salvation, Lord, with others. And just pray, Lord, that, that you would help us to just live our lives in light of what you have done for us. We thank you, Lord, so much. For allowing us to come together as a body of believers, Lord, who have all placed our faith and trust in you. And I pray, Lord, that if there are those here that have not done that, that you would make it, uh, you would be drawing them to yourself, Lord, that you would be giving them that opportunity to believe um, and come to you in saving faith. 
Thank you, Lord, again for this time. Pray that you'd be with us in the next hour as we hear the word taught once again, as we worship you, Lord, and give praises to you. Just pray that that time would bring glory and honor to you as well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.